Lord, thank you so much that we who know Jesus Christ as our Savior know that we have been adopted into your family and we are your children. Thank you so very much, Father. Thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for your Son, for his death and resurrection, which brings us life. We thank you, Father, for your word. And as we're going to look at today, you have spoken to us. We just need to listen. I pray that we would today, Father, open our, our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear you. May your spirit be the one who speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a time, several weeks ago, maybe a month ago, when I was thinking, you know, Maybe so we don't spend too long in the book of Hebrews, not that you can spend too long in any book of the Bible, but you know, so that we don't spend a year, we'll go through a chapter at a time. So I sat down on Monday, good, Amy's laughing already, I sat down on Monday, and I'm like, all right, I read the first four verses, I said, nope, we're not going to do a chapter at a time, we're going to be in Hebrews for a while, we will probably take a break from Hebrews for Christmas and finish it off next year, that's my guess. Um, yeah, I, I just, it's not going to happen. So let's read the first four verses. I'm going to give you an introduction and, and then we're, we're going to go through the book or we're going to go through, talk about the verses. Uh, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name, than they. So introduction. Now the first thing we're going to talk about is the author of the book of Hebrews. If you have been in church for any length of time or you've heard messages on the book of Hebrews, you will hear a lot of pastors, teachers, whoever's doing it say, well, the author of Hebrews said this or the author of Hebrews said that. Now ultimately, the author is, of course, the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And this actually becomes a touchy topic. I've heard people argue over who wrote the book of Hebrews. And as you look throughout church history, it's been debated for nearly 2,000 years. The early church fathers attributed the book to Paul. Later in church history, the thinking shifted some began to attribute the book to Luke, who wrote the gospel in the book of Acts. Because of the similarities of the Greek style, we're going to talk about that too. Still, others have made claims that it was Apollos or Barnabas, which there's no evidence for. One person, and the only reason I mention this is in case you ever come across it, there's one person out there, I'm sure there's people that agree with this person, but one person made the claim that Priscilla wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, the only real problem with that is when we get to chapter 11, verse 32, the author identifies himself in the masculine. Now, this person argues that, well, Priscilla lied about her gender, 
so that nobody would know that it was a woman who wrote the book. And I don't buy that. I'm just going to say I don't buy that. If you spend some time on the internet, which I don't suggest, but you'll see there's a lot of great arguments over the authorship of Hebrews. I'm going to take the next few moments, and I say few moments very loosely, to show why I believe Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. Of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is inspired by God. We're going to make several notes about the translation, and then we're going to move on. So this is why I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Are you ready? There's a lot in here. The content of Hebrews has similarity, similarities to other writings by Paul in the Bible. If you compare the content of this book to the content of the other letters that we know Paul wrote for sure, there's a lot of similarity. Early church fathers held that Paul was the author of Hebrews. For the first couple hundred years of church history, there was no argument. They believed Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So much so that the original placement of Hebrews in the New, Test New Testament was after the book of Romans. Right? In our Bibles, we go from Romans to 1 and 2 Corinthians. 1,800 years ago, they put Hebrews after the book of Romans because they thought Paul wrote it. It was moved later when authorship came into question. There's great internal evidence such as references to Timothy in chapter 13, verse 23. References to Italy. Paul would have been in Rome around the time the book was written in 1324. He mentions being in prison in 1319. He mentions being in chains in, in uh, chapter 10, verse 34. Right? All of these things that show up in other of Paul's writings. There's also the extensive knowledge of the Old Testament that's displayed throughout the book of Hebrews. Now, that could be Holy Spirit inspired. That could mean a different Jewish author. Um, but most likely, that does point us to Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament. He had to have the first five books memorized in order to be a Pharisee. I'm just happy I remember where they're at. Um, but that all points to Paul being the author. Then you have the structure of the book. And we talked about this when we were in Romans, that Paul often spends the first part of the book talking theological concepts and ideas, and the last part of the book with application. Some books, like Ephesians and Galatians, it's basically split down the middle, first half and the second half. In Romans, it was different. The first 11 chapters were theology, with the last, well, I can do math, five chapters being application and then the last chapter being his, his goodbyes. Well, Hebrews is broken up the same way. The first 10 chapters-ish, because um, it's actually about halfway through chapter 10 that that happens, but the first 10 chapters focus on theology, the last three focused on application. Uh, and finally, some question Paul's authorship based on the fact that the book was not signed by Paul. When you read his other books, he often says, Paul, an apostle of Christ to the church in wherever, right? Um, he doesn't do that here. At the end of a lot of his letters, he goes, he'll say something to the effect, because uh, he often used a scribe, to, but he'll say something to the effect, look, I've written with big letters, so you know it's me. Right? And he didn't do that in the book of Hebrews. So people go, well, if it was Paul, why wouldn't he do that? Well, there's actually a couple really good reasons. One, 
Paul was writing to a Jewish audience, and he most likely wrote the book in Hebrew. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. And as can clearly be seen throughout the entirety of the New Testament, the Jewish people didn't like Paul. So it makes sense to me that he wouldn't sign it, or they might not have read it. You ever, you ever done that? I've never done that. But, you know, but sometimes, uh, you know, if, if you know you have a good argument, but you know that people aren't going to listen to you if they know it's from you, maybe you don't put your name on it. So let's get into the translation notes I mentioned. Yes, we're still talking about authorship. Um, and, and I know maybe you're not all as interested in this as I am, but I really geeked out on this this week and had so much fun researching it. So now you have to listen. I guess you don't. You can leave. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. There is only one other logical possibility for the author of the book of Hebrews, and that's Luke. And the reason many attribute the book to Luke is the style of Greek it's written in and the Greek argumentative style that is used. Now, there's three possible explanations for that that still allow the author to be Paul. Um, one, Paul wrote this to a Jewish audience. He most likely wrote it in Hebrew. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. He was with Paul when he was in Rome and many other places. And so it's very possible that Luke may have translated it into Greek for the Gentile churches. Right? Paul was writing this in Hebrew to send back to we're not entirely sure, but we're going to talk about it in a moment, but to a Jewish audience. And so maybe Luke went, oh, you know what? The rest of the church needs this. I'm going to translate it into Greek. Because most of the church at the time was Gentile, and they spoke Greek. So that's one possibility. The second possibility, and just so you know, I didn't, I didn't come up with these. These smart people came up with these, and I wrote it down. The second one is that Luke did indeed pen the book of Hebrews. In other words, he put pen to paper, but he did so by copying down Paul's sermons. There's a number of people who, who believe that. This would explain the Greek style, but would still maintain Paul's primary authorship. And, and that one does make sense to me because Paul often used a scribe. He very rarely actually wrote things down for himself. Finally, Paul may have written it in Greek, but used a different style based on his audience. I saw one suggestion that Paul was actually writing this to other Pharisees, to his colleagues before they threw him out when he got saved, which would explain why he didn't sign it, and it would explain the stylistic difference. He wasn't writing to a Gentile audience, most of whom would have been, and this isn't to put anybody down, but most of the church, not all of the church, but a lot of the church was made up of folks who were working class, uneducated at the time. So that would explain why he had one style when he wrote to them, but a different style when he was writing to a highly educated Jewish audience. This is a suggestion I'm not saying. If I had to pick one, um, I would probably pick one of the first two. That Paul wrote it in Hebrew and Luke translated it, or Luke wrote it down based on Paul's sermons. Either way, for all of these reasons and many others, I personally believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, or he was at least directly responsible for it, under, of course, the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, with that, I would never argue with anybody. So if one of you wants to come up to me after you and say, no, Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews, okay, I'm not going to argue with you. 
If you really want to make a case for a, a different author for the, I'll listen because I made you listen to me. But I would never argue over it. I would never divide over it. I would like to point out that the authenticity of the book and its authority as part of the canon of scripture was recognized very early by the church, early church fathers. Before the first century ended, they were using the book of Hebrews as scripture. This was then affirmed by the Nicene Council, right, and, uh, where they worked on the canonization of what we now hold in our hands. Uh, and therefore, whoever wrote it, be it Paul or someone else, the fact that it belongs in Scripture as an authoritative book uh, has been firmly established. All right, the rest won't take as long. The date, somewhere between 64 and 69 AD is where it's placed. Uh, this would have been when Paul was in prison in Rome, which adds, like I mentioned earlier, to the, the uh, why I believe he, he wrote it. Um, this was when Nero was emperor in Rome. Somewhere in this time frame, Nero began the official persecution of Christians. And if you've never looked at what Nero did to the Christians, it was bad. This is when he would sew people up, or ha he wouldn't do it, but he would have people sewn up in the skins of animals thrown in the arena to be mauled by lions. This is when he would put people, uh, Christians, on a stake. He would run a stake through them while they were alive then pour oil over them and set them on fire. Then he would do this in his garden. This is how he would light his garden. Nero was insane, just completely insane. He would then ride through the garden with the Christians burning alive, naked in his chariot. Nero was not okay. Something was wrong with him. But it was in this environment that the book of Hebrews was written. And there are future promises of encouragement that the book contains, which would have been especially meaningful to the first century reader. And the theme of Hebrews is quite simple. The whole book points to the divinity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God, and that Jesus is better than a variety of things, right? He's better than the angels, which verse 4 says, and then we'll get into next week. He's, he offers us a better rest. He's a better high priest. He established a better covenant with a better sacrifice. He has led us into a better faith. And all of that will be explored as we, and more, as we move through the book. Uh, the structure of the book, as I mentioned before, first ten chapters are theology with some encouragement and application. Then three chapters of application. The split really happens about halfway through chapter ten. But of course we know the chapters and verses are not inspired, so it's not really a big deal. Uh, the audience, unlike other New Testament books, except for one, which is the Gospel of Matthew, this book was specifically written to a Jewish audience. So was Matthew. The rest of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament were mostly written to the Gentile church. Of course, Jewish believers could read it, and, and you know, there wasn't like, oh, no, you're Jewish, you can't read this book. Um, but this book and Matthew were specifically written to a Jewish audience. Hence, the extensive Old Testament references. We see the same thing in Matthew. He quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. Uh, it's possible, again, with Paul as the author, that it was written to Pharisees or to well-educated Jewish people and written in Hebrew. Nevertheless, the book still has great application and encouragements and points 
for our own Christian education and edification, which makes the book of Hebrews a wonderful book for us to study. You got all that? Let's jump into verse 1. God has spoken. Verse 1 says again, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Yes, we're going to stop in the middle of that verse. We begin with Paul telling us, I'm going to say it just so you know. If you disagree, that's okay. I, don't, I won't say the author. I refuse. Uh, we begin with Paul telling us that God has spoken in many ways in times past. And as we've been studying through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights, and as you read the Old Testament on your own, we see many ways that God has spoken to his people, right? He, he spoke through prophets. He spoke through kings. He spoke through priests. He spoke through visions. He spoke through dreams. Elijah was in a cave on a mountaintop, and he heard a still, small voice. There were times where, where God showed up in what we call a, a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of Christ, where God just shows up. We see him going and talking to Abraham. They have dinner together, and he says, I'm going to go destroy Sodom. And Abraham you know, intercedes on behalf. We're going to see that time and time again throughout the book of Judges as well. But, but just over and over and over again, we see all these various ways that God speaks to his people. But he's done something even a little better for us. In the first of the betters, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I am very grateful that we have so much of the Old Testament preserved for us. We have all of this that God has kept so that we could read as an example to us. We talked about that on Wednesday. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. In Matthew 17, 5, while he was still speaking, behold, the he that's being spoken of there is Peter, by the way. But while he was still speaking, God interrupted him. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God has spoken to us through his son, and the Father tells us to listen. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then in verse 14, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word, the logos, the very expression of who God is revealed to us. Right? Revealed to them in person, revealed to us through the scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We know 2 Timothy 3.16, I mentioned it earlier, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good God has spoken to us through his son. And he was kind enough to write it down so we wouldn't have to remember it. And I think, unfortunately, in the world we live in today, 
we know e even among church people, and I'm not saying you, you guys are better than the rest, you already know that. But among other, other churches, not here, right? Even among those who call themselves Christians, the word of God is not held in high regard. In the rest of the world, the word of God is completely ignored. You know, there was a time when if you told someone, thou shalt not murder, you'd get agreement, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. We, we shouldn't murder people. That's wrong. Now you go into some places, you say something like that. How dare you judge me? It's not judgment. You're not supposed to kill people. That should be widely accepted as a moral standard, shouldn't it? Now that one may be a little extreme. What about, thou shalt not lie? Well, you know, it's a little white lie. It was, it was meant to protect your feelings. No, you, you don't understand. I, I had to, or I would have gotten in trouble, or, or, you know, it's not hurting anybody. What difference does it make? and has been quipped for a long time, what part of thou shalt not, don't you understand? But we see those excuses, right? A hundred years ago, I'm not saying people didn't lie. People lie in the Bible. We see it. Um, but a hundred years ago, even if a person was a liar and a thief, they would generally accept that what they were doing was wrong. Not anymore. Not anymore. We have cities in our nation where they've made it legal or at least said they're not going to prosecute people for shoplifting. I'm thinking about a road trip. I got some shopping to do. Anybody want to go with me? Right? No, I wouldn't do that because thou shalt not steal means something to me. But it should mean something to them too. But it doesn't. We were talking about the breakdown of the family in our country this morning uh, during Sunday school. Why has the family been so decimated in our culture. And not just here, it's all over the world, but why has family been so decimated in our culture? Well, because simple things like raise up your child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Spare the rod, spoil the child, right? Those are all, they're both from the book of Proverbs are being ignored. Or what about, thou shalt honor your, I, I don't know why I keep saying the commandments in King James. You shall honor your father and mother. And it will be well with you. Paul points out in Ephesians chapter 6, that's the first commandment with promise. You honor your father and mother, and it will be well with you. Right? So you have parents that are no longer raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as we're commanded in Ephesians, that are sparing the rod and spoiling the child, as we're told not to do in the book of Proverbs. You have parents that are allowing their children to dishonor them. You have absentee fathers, absentee mothers, much more absentee fathers than mothers. Right? You have that going on, and then people go, I can't figure out why society's spinning clockwise down the porcelain bowl. You want to know why? We stopped listening to this book. That's why. It's that simple. People go, oh, that, that's awful cocky for you to say that. I'm not the one that says it. We're studying the book of Judges. We just finished studying the book of Joshua over and over and over again. The people of Israel told, do what God says, you'll be fine. Don't do what God says, there's consequences. And what did they do? They ignored the word of God, and there were consequences. We live in a culture that has ignored the word of God, and now there are consequences. 
appointment. We are to be different. We studied the book of James, which told us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? Don't just listen. Do what it says. Right? We don't change the word of God to fit our fancy or the whims of the culture. Because Proverbs 30, verse 5 says not to do that. To do not take anything away from his word, lest you be found a liar. We're warned in the book of Revelation in chapter 22. Don't take away from his word, or don't add to his word, or God will add to you the plagues of this book. That's a pretty good warning. Don't take away from his word, or he will take your name out of the book of life. Right? I, I don't determine what this says based on how I feel. I don't decide what's true in the Bible or what I want to or don't want to listen to because the culture says this, that, or the other thing is okay. Right? I don't get to put my opinions into the Bible. Instead, I get my opinions from the Bible. I don't get to decide morality based on how I feel or based on what the culture says is or isn't okay, which they never say anything's not okay anymore. Instead, God's word determines my morality. Now, I'm not saying that I always do it. I'm not saying that I'm perfect or sinless or anything of the sort. Y'all know better than that. Thanks, Roy. He's always there to encourage me. But in the end, I know when I'm wrong because the Bible tells me I'm wrong. I typically know what's right because the Bible tells me what's right. Now, walking it out, I don't always do perfectly. But God's word is what tells us. It's that simple. Jesus told us at the end of Matthew chapter 7, that if we hear his sayings and walk them out, if we hear them and do them, like James said, we'll be like the wise men who built their house upon the rock. And the storms come and the floods come. But that house doesn't move because it's built on a solid foundation, which is the listening to and obeying of God's word. Because the foolish man builds his house on the sand. That's the person who may hear the word of God but doesn't apply it, doesn't live it out. That person is like the person who builds their house on the sand. Storm comes, the flood comes, and the house falls, and great is its fall. I could spend a lot of time on this. I'm very passionate about the Word of God. I hope you are too. The point being, um, read it, listen to it, obey it, memorize it, meditate on it, share it, Get into the word. Second half of verse 2. Second half of verse 2 says, Whom he has appointed, heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So whom he, speaking of the Father, has appointed, and the word appointed there means to place, commit, ordain, or purpose, 
So whom he has placed, or whom the Father has committed, or whom the Father has ordained, whom the Father has purposed, to be all of what follows. Right? So he has done all of this so that Jesus can be heir of all things. And I love that, right? We, we like to talk about the Greek. It, it maybe makes me look smart. I just know how to use a dictionary. Um, and I don't even really have to use a dictionary. I just click on it in my program, and it brings up the Greek definitions. It's an awesome program. Um, but the word all there, you guys already know where I'm going, don't you? All. It means all. Jesus is heir of all things. What does Jesus get? Everything. It's all his. God is giving all of it to him. It's pretty cool to me. As the heir of all things, do you know that we have the privilege of being joint heirs with Christ? Romans 8.17 states, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I want you to think about that. We've, we've talked about this before. If all we got from Jesus' death and resurrection was deliverance from an eternity in hell, that would be gift enough. If we believed in Jesus and, and all we got, right, we get nothing else, all we get is we don't spend eternity in the place where the fire never dies. Or the worm, uh, sorry, the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is all right, you believe in Jesus, you don't have to go there. Woohoo! But you know, that just scratches the surface. Because not only are we delivered from that, we are given new and abundant life here. A purpose to live out by the power of God's Holy Spirit. How about the fact that he gives us his Holy Spirit? The fact that God dwells with us at all times. Then on top of that, he says, okay, I'm going to give you, I'm going to, you don't have to go to hell. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to give you a purpose and plan for your life. I'm going to give you abundant life here, eternal life to come. When we get there, we get a crown, the crown of righteousness, which Jesus purchased for us. Then a crown of reward for the things he did in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's pretty great. Right? Streets of gold, big pearly gates. To spend eternity in the physical presence of God. Which if we did that now, we would melt like the dude at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just straight up. But then, as we're given a new body, clothed in the righteousness of Christ... We get all of that. Any point in there, God could have said, that's enough. But then we are promised in his word that we are co-heirs with Christ. So not only do we get all that, everything he gets, we get. I can't fathom that. I, it boggles my mind. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And I got a pretty great imagination. Doesn't matter how big your imagination is or how big my imagination is. We can't 
even guess at all that's coming. That's good news. It says, through whom he also made the world. This is told to us in John chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. We read 1, 2, and uh, 14, but verses 3 through 5 said, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So we know that Jesus the Son is the agent of creation. If you go back to the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, and then God said, let there be life. Well, Jesus is the Logos, the Word, the very expression of who the Father is. So when God said, Jesus became the agent of creation. If you think about it too much, it'll make your brain hurt, but it's still true. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. So we have the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. All three of these ideas uh, are expressed by Paul through the Holy Spirit, or through Paul by the Holy Spirit, in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Remember, he's the heir of all things. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So all of that, Jesus being the creator, Jesus being the image of God, and Jesus upholding all things by the word of his power are all communicated there in Colossians chapter 1 as well, which I find fascinating. My favorite part is that in him all things consist. Now don't get me wrong, I love that he's the image of the invisible God, that he created everything, that everything was created by him and for him, but that in him all things consist. That word consist in Greek means hold together. You ever tried to hold something together that didn't want to be held together? Right, you, maybe you broke a, a, a vase and you try to glue it back together, and the pieces keep falling off, and, and then you, you think you finally got it, and the cat jumps on the table, and the whole thing crumbles, or whatever. You try to hold something together that doesn't want to be held together. Well, do you realize that that's everything in the, in the universe? Protons and neutrons are constantly fighting to get away from each other, right? They're, they're, they're spinning around a nucleus, whatever they're making up, right? Because he did create all things that are invisible, because we are made up of stuff that we can't actually see. And so protons and neutrons, even though they're spinning around the nucleus, they're trying to escape. Now there's a particle, the Higgs boson particle. And please, I'm not a physicist. I've read about this. I'm not that smart. But the Higgs boson particle has been lovingly nicknamed. Now they don't call it this anymore, but when it was discovered, or when it was first theorized, they called it the God particle because they know it's there, and it's what keeps atoms from flying apart on their own, right? Human beings have figured out a way to do it, and the consequences were devastating. 
But they know that atoms only hold together because of the Higgs boson particle or the quote-unquote God particle. They, they can't actually explain it. They've made a lot of attempts to do so, and the science behind it is way beyond, beyond me. But the point is, is there's something that holds everything together, because we're all made up of atoms, something that holds everything together that science can't fully explain. In him, all things hold together. I'm not a physicist, but I can explain it. Jesus is the one holding it together. Now at the end, Peter talks about how the elements will melt with a fervent heat. What's described there, we've seen in nuclear explosions. And in nuclear explosions, what happens? They separate an atom or multiple. So what's going to cause all of the elements and all of creation to melt with a fervent heat? Well, we're going to get to the point where Jesus is going to let go. I'm so glad that he'll have taken us home by then. But very, very interesting stuff. When he had, right, he's upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. We studied this at length in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Uh, I would highly encourage anybody who didn't hear that message or wants a reminder, it's on our website. Um, because this is what the passage says, and we, we tore it down to its elements and took a lot of time looking at it. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation or a substitutionary sacrifice by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus purged our sins. It allowed to God to be just because he had to punish sin. So he punished it in his son so that he could justify us. He wouldn't have to punish us. What a gift. And then it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul wrote about this in Romans 8.34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Stephen saw this when he was martyred in Acts chapter 7. Verse 55, they were stoning him. He prayed, Father, forgive them. And he looked up into heaven. And Jesus stood up from his seat next to the Father to receive the first martyr home. And then it says, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. We're told in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, that God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So as we close, that was a lot to take in. I know. I would apologize, but it was necessary. I am really excited about our journey through the book of Hebrews, which, if you haven't noticed, I believe was written by Paul. If I made that clear, that I believe that at the very least, uh, this book will help us to grow into our identity in Christ as adopted sons and daughters of the Most High and One True God. There's something special about the book of Hebrews in teaching us who we are in Him. Another book that does that really well is the book of Ephesians, but there's something special about the book of Hebrews that teaches us about Jesus as our high priest, Jesus as our rest, Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for our sins that will help us understand our identity in him. In the end, Jesus, of course, is better. He's better than anything else the world has to offer. He's better than the angels, which we're going to look at next week, and is the only way by which we can be saved. It's all about Jesus, my brothers and sisters. And the book of Hebrews explains that very well. So, of course, it's important as we close that we take it home. Because I know I've, I have spewed out a lot of theological stuff today, which for me is really fun. But what good does it do us if we can't take it home? If we can't walk it out tomorrow? So, here's a couple suggestions. First and foremost, and I say it every week, and I'm never going to stop, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Somebody here, somebody joining us online, do you have a relationship with the one who is better than anything and everything and the only one who can save us? Because if you don't have that relationship, none of this does you any good. But understanding that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, and that whoever believes in him turning from their sins will have everlasting life. If for some reason you don't know that, come talk to me afterwards. If you're online, leave a comment, send us a message. Because there's nothing that matters more. All those things I talked about, all the things that were promised, well, they don't apply if you don't know Jesus. Number two, Jesus is the word. And it is through Jesus that God has spoken to each of us. So I ask you this question with all the love in my heart because it's a question I have to ask myself quite often. Are we listening? Are we listening by being in the Bible? Are we listening by being open to the Holy Spirit speaking to us through his word? Are we taking the time to listen to his voice? People love to say, well, I just wish God would speak to me. He has. Most of the time when we think God isn't speaking to us, it's because we're not listening. Finally, and this one is, is a lot because it's really been on my mind and my heart lately in my own walk with Christ. And I know that this is going to come up multiple times. You already know it's already up there. But <laughs> it comes up multiple times as we go through the book of Hebrews. But that is, is where do we find our identity? 
right? In our day and age, it's easy to find our identity in a number of things. You can find it in your work, in your family, in your education, in a hobby. But we're supposed to find our identity in Christ as new creations, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. As we reflect on what we've learned about Jesus today, there are many aspects of this that speak to our identity in him. We're heirs with him as adopted children of God. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He purchased us with his blood and is the very image and glory of God the Father. So we can seek our identity in other things, or we can find our true identity in Jesus as children of God. We're going to talk more about this as we move to the book of Hebrews, but I want you to think about it. I want you to reflect on it. I want you to pray over it and let God show you where you find your identity. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, I'm going to close with this, and then we're done, I promise. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. This is not, of course, preaching that there's no gender. It's just in Christ, we are all one. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Which, of course, is a promise of rest. We're going to get to that in Hebrews chapter 4. Until then, let's pray. Father, we love you. I pray that you would help us listen to your voice. Pray that you would help us find our identity in Christ. And I pray as we go about our week that you would bless us, speak to us, help us to draw closer to you, walk with us, and help us recognize that you're there. May you be glorified in all things.